Welcome to episode five of the Internal Comms podcast with me, Katie McCauley. This week, I wanted to take an outside-in approach to internal communications. I wanted to find out what we can learn from best practice across external comms. So I went to an external comms expert, Stephen Waddington. Stephen is, quite frankly, Mr. Public Relations. He's devoted his career to the profession. He is the author of eight books on marketing and PR, including Brand Vandals and Brand Anarchy. He writes a highly informative, award-winning blog, see the show notes to subscribe, and is past president of the Chartered Institute of Public Relations. He is currently visiting Professor of Practice at Newcastle University. And let's not forget the day job. Stephen is UK Managing Director at Metia Group, a marketing agency where he leads a team of 60, managing content marketing, social media and communications campaigns. He was previously Chief Engagement Officer at Ketchum, an Omnicom-owned agency serving clients in over 70 countries. But you, like me, may know Stephen simply as Wads. His handle on Twitter, where he has 22,500 followers. I hadn't met Stephen before this interview. From following him on social media, I expected a clear thinker. Someone direct, perceptive, full of sound, no-nonsense advice. He is all those things, but he's also warm and engaging. In fact, he's the first guest to find out how I take my coffee before an interview so that he can arrive with the right breakfast for both of us at 8.30 in the morning. We do cover a lot of ground in this interview. It is one of our longer episodes, but I urge you to stick with it. We talk about echo chambers and ward gardens on the internet how artificial intelligence is impacting our career opportunities, how to establish a newsroom to have conversations in the moment, and what makes a profession truly professional. And we discover we share a love for the same book. Find out why you should read a book about the internet written 20 years ago. That's before Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, were even a twinkle in somebody's eye. But I start by taking Stephen back to the very beginning of his career and discover a less than straightforward route into public relations. Stephen, can I take you back? to 1993. You're graduating from Salford University, I believe, with a degree in electronics. Yeah. What led you then into the world of public relations? At that point, did you have a completely alternative career in mind? No. So I trained originally as an engineer and absolutely hated it. So it was a time when there was a lot of infrastructure work being done in the UK. There was a lot of the microelectronics industry was just about starting to grow and I joined uh, a civil engineering company working on a consulting project actually the the implementation of the first electronic toll system on the Dartford Bridge I just hated it long nights commissioning systems very very boring 
I just didn't get on with it. And so during that time, I'd started writing, encouraged by various people around me. I jumped out of engineering after a couple of years and became a journalist. Trained as a journalist when you could still train as a journalist and a technical writer. And then fortuitously met a guy called Robin Saxby, who had just got the job as chief executive of um, now the huge microelectronics company. The, you know, we have chip, it's chips in most of our devices, hugely successful British company. And he hired me to help with his PR. Wow. And you never look back. No, but no. I've, so I, I must say, I've retrospectively or retrofitted an education in, in formal learning in PR right, along right. the way. Yes. Because I didn't, no, didn't have any formal training. Right, right. Uh, although I, I was fortunate when I was at school that I had um, some really, really good communicators around me who, you know, helped me learn to write. My grandfather, huge influence sort of renaissance man in his understanding of science, technology, and also an ability to communicate. So, you know, a lot of help along the way. Right. And I guess we do find lots of journalists end up in all kinds of Mm. comms disciplines. And I just think that ability to write, to get to the facts, to have a nose for a story, they're not bad skills. Are they quite useful? Yeah, they are. There's an, an, an element of the public relations industry looks down its nose at journalists that come into the profession and there's an ongoing debate and tension about whether journalists make suitable PR people. Actually, the nose for the story and the ability to communicate and write is a really, really valuable skill. What journalists need to learn are the more rounded skills of listening, understanding, managing relationships. And so that's the bit that I've worked hard to retrofit into my education. Very interesting. Thank you. Now, for all those IC pros listening, I wondered if you could do us a favour and just give us your preferred definition of what public relations means, what it is today. I'm guessing it's probably changed since its founding fathers 70 odd years ago, if not more. What does it mean today, public relations? So I think, first of all, you've got to look at what's the purpose of an organisation most organisations exist either to serve their publics or to generate a return for their stakeholders. So how does public relations fit in with that? Well, my definition is to create mutual understanding between an organisation and its publics. And, you know, I think it's that two-way process that we so often forget in internal communications and the broader public relations sphere. And I've heard you say, and I think it was on a webinar probably about a year ago, you said there's never been a better time to work in PR. And I was slightly surprised by that. It's a very noisy world. It's very hard to grab people's attention. There's quite a sort of dissemination generally in the comms landscape. So why would you say that now? Uh, Because organisations need communicators more than ever. Yes, it is noisy, but... You know, the virtue of a communicator is they can help an organization make sense of all that noise. So there's two parts to this. There's the, and this is the bit we so often forget in public relations. There's the aspect of the organization communicating with its publics, but then there's the publics communicating back with the organization. And public relations tends to focus on the outbound activity from the organization. The opportunity lies at the intersection of the two, and those were the definition of public relations, creating mutual understanding. From mutual understanding, you get respect, reputation, trust. And it's that intersection which makes it so exciting. Now, a lot of practitioners are still very focused on 
the traditional practice of creating content, pushing it out through channels, predominantly through media, earned media. But actually, we should start by listening to what our publics are saying. My goodness, they're telling us more and louder than ever via multiple channels. If only we'd listen what they think of the organisations we work for and serve. So that mirrors exactly the challenge for internal communications, really. And something that I know others I've certainly been banging on about for a very long time is that the best communicators are the best listeners. (laughs) We could start there. That wouldn't be a bad place to start. No, it wouldn't. No, not at all. No. And it's where I encourage any client, any organisation I'm working for, any student practising public relations to start. Start by Mm. listening. Start with just by understanding. I do a lot of coaching and training up at the University of Newcastle with students there, but also more broadly in the industry. And always the first thing I'll say is, you know, start whatever exercise you're doing, whatever piece of work, start by listening. And there's great tools now, aren't there, to help you to do that? Yeah, some of them are expensive, but for any amount of social channels, there's, you know, tools that help us make sense of the conversations. I mean, that's where listening seems to be particularly focused because on the public networks like Twitter, you can use the native Twitter search engine to, you know, identify publics and listen to what they're saying. But then, yeah, you can use tools. Mm. It's massive for the party market emerging around those. Right. What are the big challenges for PR at the moment? Have you just mentioned the noise levels and the need to engage in a genuine dialogue? What other challenges do you see sort of facing the profession at the moment? So there's this issue of technology impacting practice. So there's a whole level of roles within public relations going to disappear, I believe, because of tools. And you're already starting to see that through the automation of some processes. Right. So around measurement and attribution, technology is helping us either to work smarter and prove our value to organisations in ways that we just haven't been able to do before, or it's stripping away a whole administration layer. So I started out in practice 20 years ago in a tech PR agency working for Arm. Then half my day will be spent trawling through forward features paper-based calendars, looking for opportunities, egg cows, and half my day would then be spent either writing press releases and stuffing them into envelopes to send out to the press or physically clipping coverage and pasting it into books. All those jobs now have been replaced by technology. So you can use things like response source, you can use, you know, online editorial calendars, you can actually, you know, just plug into networks and understand what journalists are writing about that function's all gone. We're still writing press releases, yes, but, you know, sub-editing and refining them, we can use technology to do. And, you know, when did you last put a press release in the post? It's all gone on wire services now. So that's a small example from 20 years ago, but the march of technology in practice is huge. Yeah. So that's one. The other one is I think we've got a real issue with diversity in practice Mm. so we don't represent the publics that we serve and I think that's led to all sorts of skews so I was one of the people that completely got Brexit wrong because you weren't alone no but shocking I had a real moment of reckoning because every net that was plugged into seemingly could not foresee that the UK would leave Brexit now we are doing we got it completely wrong and I think we got it completely wrong as a profession it shot the profession shot the media because there's a bias in our 
profession. We don't represent the publics that we serve. So there's a bias around socioeconomic diversity. 7% of the population was educated independently, yet 30% of the profession is from an independent background. The stats around BAME practitioners, there's fantastic work being done by organisations like Taylor Bennett, but we're not represented equally. We're very, very London-centric in the UK, in the US, similar, very New York-centric or Washington-centric. So there's discontinuities all over the profession that has led to things like, you know, is calling Brexit wrong. Yes, and also coming back to social media, does that encourage us to stay within a very comfortable echo chamber where we're listening to ourselves? Um, Absolutely. So I've done this myself deliberately. You know, social media can be quite a caustic place to exist. Twitter, I've had this conversation very recently, actually. It's the 10th anniversary this year of a festival called Twestival. That was a wonderful organisation that was set up in the UK and it became a worldwide foundation to raise money for an organisation called WaterAid, clean water to the developing world. And 10 years ago, there were local meetups in major cities initially in the UK, and then it became a worldwide movement. And it was a very friendly place where you could meet and have relationships. I could not imagine that happening now because Twitter's become so polarised and caustic. And, you know, there's conversations you just cannot have on Twitter. And yes, it's the most acute in the political sphere, So around issues like Brexit, around the far right, the far left, momentum. But also there's just topics that you just cannot discuss, like veganism, like cycling, the tension between motorists and cyclists. You just cannot have those conversations because they become so extreme so quickly. So what happens is you switch off, uh, you unfollow people, and so you just tighten, tighten, tighten your bubble. So you're surrounded by people that reflect your point of view. Yes, which just increases that polarisation, I guess. Just coming back to the problem of, not the problem, but the opportunity, Anna, I guess, the problem of technology, and some of those lower level, more administrative jobs going away, does that mean it might get in some ways harder to get into the profession because there aren't those junior roles? Are we going to have to think differently about the value we add as human beings within the profession because there's so much of what can be done by non So I think there's two answers to that. The first one is roles are changing. So if I was at university now, I would train in data science. Right. So I could drive tools like Brandwatch and Brand24 and be able to segment publics into different types and be able to understand the conversations they're having that's an incredibly valuable skill and a skill that every organization and agency is looking for and then the second one is we seem to have lost the respect for the craft of public relations and what i mean by that is the ability to listen to conversation the ability to write content the ability to create audio and so that's where i'd also focus, focus on craft and become exceptional in developing your craft. Never fails to amaze me how, you know, everyone can write a blog and that's a great thing, but how poor some communicators are at writing and communicating, both verbally and written. Yes. I mean, if there's a phrase that makes my heart sink, it's content marketing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's, there's all that. And there's, there's this, we've got this great march at the moment to have public relations recognised as a management discipline, be recognised in the boardroom. If everyone's going to get in the boardroom, it's going to be very, very noisy, it is. very, very busy. 
actually, you know, recognize that a mature profession has two levels in it. There's this sort of technical technician level and there's the management level. And, you know, you practice your craft as a technician level. And then, you know, in time, in a mature profession, you become a manager, mm. a director. So, you know, people think they jump from one to the other. You don't, you know, it should be a graduation. Absolutely. Building skills as you go. Yeah. I wanted to touch on the newsroom model that I've heard you talk about. Mm. I think you've said it's an absolute requirement in public relations. And interestingly, we're seeing clients adopt that model in-house. I mean, obviously we run it ourselves at AB, but we see our clients adopt that in-house for internal communications. Mm. Not without problems, I have to say. So I just wondered if you could talk us through what you mean by that model and the challenges you've seen in, in implementing that. Yeah, so newsroom is very simple means of workflow to describe how you run a modern and effective public relations campaign in real time engaging with the public's day to day. It's called newsroom because it's based on the technology and workflow that's come out of media organizations in their newsrooms. You know, there's a whole variety of tools you can use to listen and understand the conversations that are going on amongst your publics. And we've already mentioned some of those. And so the newsroom brings together the skills that you need to respond to those conversations or engage with those conversations on behalf of your organization with its publics. So, you know, at its very simplest level, it's a bunch of technology and people sitting in a room working in a very agile way, meeting maybe once, twice a day, depending on the scale of the organization that are all there performing, listening to the conversation, understanding if there's a need for an intervention on behalf of the organization, or if the organization has a particular piece of news it wants to land, what the opportunity might be to do that, creating and crafting the content, and then figuring out the best way channels to get that out and push it out to mm. the market. So it's an opportunity, I guess, immediately I can see it's an opportunity to have a conversation in the moment mm. while it's happening, mm. joining a conversation, yeah. which you know is also gonna be much more powerful, but I can imagine a few I see people listening going, oh, OK, so how does approval work in that process? Um, what autonomy do I need to be given and how do I get that autonomy to yeah. be able to speak on behalf of my organisation in the moment? Yeah, so pre-plan, create governance around what's appropriate and what's not, route what you're doing in listing. I mean, we've seen huge strides in the last five years, I think, around organizations relaxing where they'll allow communicators to speak on behalf of the organizations and the topics and areas they're allowed to cover equally the no-go areas because you know clearly there are still going to be areas that an organization is not going to want to speak on so i just think it comes down to robust governance and presumably Knowing the tone of voice of the organisation must be so important. So you don't want to sound like a corporate chatbot, (laughs) but at the same time, you want to be on point if it isn't your brand's kind of personality to be highly, you know, amusing, silly. Yeah. That's all part of that. So organisations are still getting this wrong. The internet's been mainstream for almost 20 years now, and organisations get this wrong every single day. And it comes in waves and, and phases. And it's great that there's still a huge amount of experimentation. But, you know, the place where I'd study the best practice around this would be any organization in the travel or transport industry, the entertainment industry, 
or the hospitality industry and how they manage conversation on a platform like Twitter or their own communities or Facebook, because day in, day out, they are facing... Uh, the public's not very pleasant often. No. Um, and they're facing brutal, brutal comments, especially on the network like Twitter and how they managed that situation. It's great. So the train companies in London, great example, back in the northeast, I travel backwards and forwards on LNER. If there's a problem on that train line, the public it will be vociferous in its criticism. I'm fairly often these organisations and it's the people on the front line, the communicators that are the brunt of that. Yes, absolutely. So it can be a, a tough place to be. But in that moment, you add so much value if you're just giving plain good advice in yeah. the moment. Exactly. Yeah. I saw a tweet from you not that long ago about internal communications. And you said in that tweet, along with leadership, it's the thing likely to have the biggest impact on the performance of an organisation. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah. What have you seen over the years that has led you to that view? good and bad practice i guess just that if an organization is single-minded in the service it delivers to its publics and its leaders are bought into that it can have a completely transformational effect on an organization timpsons is the example i cite a lot you know it's md is there on twitter it's a huge organization one on most in most train stations or high streets still and gives the impression that, you know, it's still a family-friendly organisation, but it's a huge organisation. Mm-hmm. You go into any shop and, you know, you get the same level of customer service. You see the MD on Twitter engaging with publics. Yeah, it just is incredibly effective. What's been your own approach to internal communications? You've led large teams, organisations... Mm. So I'm two months into a new job, actually. Yes. A new agency called Metia that I joined in January to run as MD. So this is highly pertinent. So 50-odd people in London, and I've spent the first two months listening to people and trying stuff, trying lots of different things, using different networks, using different forms of communication, changing how I communicate around the organisation and what I've just found meeting people talking to people and doing a weekly email is the most effective thing that just cuts through sometimes the very basic stuff just works yes we don't sometimes have to overthink it I do a Friday update I put it on workplace and I've heard people on holiday will just go into workplace just check on that yeah the one thing I need to know this week the one thing I need to read so yeah yeah, I think we can slightly overcomplicate it I think we can and then there's nothing a bit like Timson the sub a leader that just leads by rolling the sleeves up and getting off. And so people that work with me know, well, anyone that follows me on Twitter or on my blog knows that I'll just roll my sleeves up and get on and do stuff. And I think, you know, that's how you get respect from teams, just showing them that people, showing them that you're prepared to, you know, muck in and get on with stuff. There's lots of talk, partly it's me doing the talking, about greater alignment I guess you could call it convergence between internal and external communication I think we live in an era of transparency I've heard it called radical transparency which means that any disconnect between what happens inside and what you say is happening inside and what really is happening inside you're going to be found out very very quickly are we sort of talking about that but not really doing it is there greater alignment are you being brought into more and more projects where there is an IC person in the room and you're thinking about the internal interpretation or campaign around the external one 
So first things first, I think the internal audience has got to be the most important audience within an organization from a communication point of view. So the internal organization, especially in an organization in you know, facing a crisis event, needs to be briefed ahead of any external communication because, as you rightly cite, organizations are porous. So, you know, any disconnect is going to come out and mm. now it will come out on you know, any platform that you choose. And then that becomes the story. So, you know, you see that played out day in, day out in the emergency services. And the emergency services actually are best in class at dealing with this sort of issue. So the ad point to the NHS actually and the police is brilliant. Uh, internal communications addressing their audiences internally and then external communicating. And you know, we could learn a lot in commercial organisations from how that sort of approach to, I guess it is a form of command and control communications, but you know, it's incredibly effective. So in day-to-day practice, does internal communications often sit with external communications in the same room? No, it doesn't. No, there's still that blurring in so many organisations between where communication sits, both external and internal, and the juxtaposition between HR and marketing. Right. And there's a tension there. And, you know, in highly effective organisations, yes, there's complete alignment, but mm. they're few and far between. Do you have any advice for someone working in IC feels a little bit stuck in an IC silo or maybe even in a HR silo? How would you encourage them to kind of climb out of that? Is there an, an obvious first step? Yeah, so it's to ask what their contribution is to the organisation that they serve. And so often you find that, you know, by the time you get down to the communication function within an organisation, the marketing function, the HR function, you know, they've got an objective that's somehow mangled. You kind of chime through Chinese whispers from the organization's objectives. And, you know, the further away you get from the center of the organization, the noisier the Chinese whispers are. I'd encourage anyone to look at the organization's objectives and insist that their objectives are aligned to that because otherwise, you know, how do you prove your value? Absolutely. I'm just coming back to it, the newsroom model. Presumably, what you like to see, what we all like to see is all the communicators from all the different mm. functions, whether it's investor relations, whether it's internal comms, marketing, sitting in a room at least once a week, maybe once a month at the very worst, discussing a joint calendar of events and campaigns and happenings both within the organisation and externally. But I'm guessing even that probably doesn't happen as much as it should. In well, fact, I know it doesn't. Yeah, I mean, so a marketing, you know, the calendar of announcements for an organisation typically is set by corporate communications or it's set by marketing and they're in, the, you know, it's mangled somewhere in between the two. Actually, I think corporate communicators can be their own worst enemy by getting in the way of, and, and you know, creating bureaucracy and process and and. You've got to get out of those silos and it's exactly why you look to ladder up to what the objectives of the organisation are. Increasingly, I'm actually finding planning cycles now are becoming shorter and stuff's happening in real time and actually calendars are set on a quarterly rolling basis. It's all done digitally. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. They're both relatively young professions i see i mean you could argue that there's probably been internal communications since there's been business that some form even if it was just shouting over the machinery or whatever but um in terms of the professionalization 
of the discipline, I yeah. guess. Are there things that I see people can learn from PR? Or what's been the trajectory? What's been the journey? And is there still more work to do to establish? Tons. Tons, right. Loads and loads of work. So, yes, the public relations of discipline is about 100 years old. I've actually done a lot of work in studying professions and understanding, you know, there's four or five tenets of a profession. Some sort of barrier to entry, qualifications, formalised professional development, some sort of code of conduct that's robustly enforced, and then typically a mature interchange between academia and practice. So, you know, there's a body of knowledge around study. And, you know, in internal communications and public relations, we've probably got three of those, maybe four of those. And that's not to say, you know, profession, what is a profession isn't changing all the time. But, yeah, we've still a long way to go. And I think the way that I think I'd often say to internal communications and external PR people is have a respect for your own learning and development and training qualifications and a respect that somebody in finance would do or the legal profession mm. would do. And mm. so often we just don't. We learn on the job. You often hear that phrase, you know, with the march of technology and the pace of automation coming into our profession, yeah, I'd urge anyone to base their personal development on qualifications, but then continuous learning. Yeah, absolutely. Challenge yourself, on, you know, where am I weakest? You know, maybe it's an area of craft like writing or audio or you know, presentation or, you know, maybe it's you want to learn something completely new, like how to drive a listening tool and understanding public, identify influences and such like, jump in. Mm, continuous learning. Yeah. It's interesting because Jennifer Sprawl from the Institute of Internal Communication was on the last episode and, and she was saying it's not mandatory that we have a licence to operate. No. You know, obviously it'd be odd to give your accounts to someone who wasn't a chartered accountant and expect the same level of quality of service. But we should behave and act and develop ourselves in the way mentally just assuming that we do need to have a license to operate yeah you know and that i think that's probably yeah. what you're saying yeah totally agree yeah mm. and it's just i've worked through one stage i was president of the cipr back in 2014 and you know i've worked with the membership organization for quite some time huge respect for the work it does but we have a profession of around the government reckons based on ONS data, 70 to 80,000 people in the UK. That's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot of people communicate with publics, you know, so it's quite a broad profession. The CIPR, last count, has about ten to 12,000 members, varies, fluctuates a little bit. Around 2,000 of those do CPD. It's woeful. Wow. So, you know, 4% of the practitioners in the UK are signed up to do CPD and don't even start on qualifications because, you know, the number gets smaller and smaller. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But we are, we are seemingly the profession that won't learn or doesn't <laughs> learn. But, you know, I take that as an opportunity because uh, if you're out in front learning and developing, then you're going to be in a good place. And also, we live in a world, don't we, which is changing so quickly. What you know now is not going to be enough to sustain you <laughs> for the months to come, let alone the years to come. Let's talk a little bit about leadership. So this latest Edelman Trust Barometer, I found really fascinating because it kind of suggested now that the most trusted institution in the world now is actually employers. Employees yeah. are looking to their employers to give them 
the truth, basically, to be that trusted source of information. It did suggest that more and more we're going to have to expect organisations and potentially also CEOs to sort of step up to the plate and campaign potentially, certainly have a view Mm. on important issues. I'm guessing in PR you do this all the time. Is it hard sometimes to convince leaders to, to sort of step up, put their head above the parapet, get on the podium? Yeah, incredibly difficult because you're out in the face of public opinion. I mean, look at the issue at the moment around Brexit. So few business leaders have been reluctant to go and take a point of view and even explain to their employees what the implications of Brexit might be because the moment they do, some constituency of their public will call them out and criticise them. And you have to be very, very confident as an organisational leader of your point of view and recognise if you are going to take a point of view, you are going to polarise public opinion. And that's just not a place that many leaders or many organisations are prepared to go. So, you know, it's why with a month ago before Brexit, we're only just starting to see, for example, the leading supermarkets in the UK actually say what the implication is going to be of Brexit on their supply chains if we don't have a no deal. We're only just starting to see the major manufacturers say you know, what the implication is and start to make investment decisions based on Brexit. I studied last year the Lush campaign. So this was a, a campaign, Spy Cops. So Lush High Street vendor on most high streets in the, in the UK provides you know mid-range cosmetics. And its leaders took this stand on covert policing called Spy Cops and rolled out through their shops. And it was optional whether a shop implemented the campaign, but rolled out a very critical campaign criticising covert undercover policing in the UK. Now, that campaign was absolutely rooted in the values of the leaders of the organisation, but it completely polarised public opinion. You know, there's an organisation taking this brave stand on an issue relevant to public opinion that completely divided its public and faced criticism, you know, political criticism, criticism from the police, criticism from, you know, some of its publics. But mm. Brownwatch did a good analysis of the case and, you know, it ended up resulting in increased sale and footfall in their stores. But if you're a communicator in that organisation during the first week of the campaign, you must have been wondering what the hell the organisation was doing. So it puts an organisation in a very vulnerable place when it does take a position on that. And it's brave organisations that do. Do you think we are going to see more brave organisations, though, deciding what their stand is and campaigning? You'd like to hope so, but it's kind of step by step, baby Mm. steps, isn't it? So to another organisation, Iceland, that, you know, was campaigned on palm oil and then it's set goals for changing its supply chain they found out in january that some of its products still contain palm oil you know it's criticized for it vociferously the leader richard walker i think you know he's put in a really uncomfortable position Mm. um despite his best attention he's failed because he's made a public statement on something and actually he's worked really really hard to counter it and CEOs looking at that and his competitors must think, well, you know, 
<laughs> you put yourself. There's no need. There's no need to do it. You put yourself it. in this position. Yeah, you know, it's a very raw place to be. But you know, I've no data from sales from Iceland or the impact on the organisation's culture. But you know, you've got to bet that that's a high-performing organisation. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because Edelman is saying employees want their employers to stand up, campaign. Yeah. They don't have much trust or faith in the system anymore. Yeah. So this is the last place to look, potentially. So, uh, you know, herein lies a role for professional communicators. We can help those organisations understand, if they are going to take a stand, how it will polarise opinion and the impact that that right. will have. And, you know, it might be that you're going to upset a constituency that you're just not concerned about. And the win is actually your employers, your loyal customers or prospects are, you know, are going to be supportive of your position. Mm. And then it's a judgment call by management whether to act on that or not. Yes, absolutely. But forewarned is forearmed, I guess, in that respect. Let's talk a little bit about measurement, because I know in public relations that's evolved over the years. It used to be very much about measuring, you know, outputs, advertising value equivalents. Now, I'm guessing it's much more about measuring impact and outcomes, um, how you're actually driving business performance. In internal communications, it's still a struggle. We saw the Gatehouse State of the Sector report come out saying measurement is still a real difficult issue for us, actually. Do you have any advice for us that you've seen work in PR to make IC measurement more robust and meaningful? Yes. And so this is back to the purpose of the organisation and aligning what you do with that purpose and then figuring out a means of attribution against that purpose. Now, you know, in communications, you know, we're talking about relationships. It's difficult to measure the impact of communication on relationships. So that's why we've come up with all sorts of dodgy metrics like ABA, because that's frankly much, much easier. There's now any number of tools to attribute the impact of what we do on levels of engagement, behavioural change. And I suggest that's where people look. It's the one area where technology is having huge impacts on effectiveness. Now is much more possible to find out that behavioural change, levels of real engagement, how you might have shifted opinion yeah. than it ever has been. Yeah. And that's where we should look. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, and do that through simplest level. You know, people listening to this podcast, you know, it's hopeless getting data from a channel like podcasting to understand, like you can just about see how many people have downloaded it, but we no idea whether people are actually listening to this. You know, the way you do that is go downstream and actually talk to your public, to your audience and ask them. Exactly. The you know, and that isn't easy, but you've got to do it. That neatly kind of introduces the fact that I'm going to be asking listeners at the end of season one to complete a survey. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Thank you, Stephen. <laughs> it is interesting, though. I tell you the problem in IC I often hear from clients is, oh, our organisation's got survey-itis. Yeah. Constant tugs on the sleeve, you know, yeah. to ask of an opinion. What do you think of this? Yeah. Can we get around that problem, do you think? You mean pull surveys? Those kinds like of this. things, yes, yes. Um, 
don't do them. Right. <laughs> do, do less of them. I do think this comes down to robust planning. You know, what's right. the purpose of the organisation? How do your objectives align to that purpose? How are you going to benchmark it and do it? Be realistic about doing it as well. The serviatus thing is, you know, just an insecurity by the sound of it. You know, instead of being realistic and pragmatic about, you know, benchmarking quarterly or even half yearly, you know, asking someone every other week what they think just isn't going to work, is it? No, and I think also part of the surveyitis problem comes because we've seen this happen over and again, particularly with the annual employee engagement survey, often not a lot happens afterwards. So I think as an individual, I'll happily give you my view if I feel you might actually listen to it, potentially even do something different as a result. But if I'm always giving my view and I'm not seeing a lot change, then that possibly is where that problem stems from, I think. So it comes back to what you were saying before about entering into a genuine conversation. Yeah, don't pay lip service to it. But, you know, if you're going to listen to the organisation, yes, you're right, act on that. Yeah, act on what you hear. In researching for this episode, I think it was a blog, but I read something you'd written where you talk about the Clue Train Manifesto. Oh, I adore the Clue Train Manifesto. (laughs) When I was writing from Cascade to Conversation, I think there's 300 or so, 400 uh, books and papers and reports and all sorts of things in the bibliography. But that book... Yeah. is the book that stood out for me. Now, yeah. anyone who hasn't read it, and I'm guessing that's going to be quite a few people. I'm going um, all goose pimple. <laughs> i tell you why, because it's the 20th anniversary it of the train, and I have the only copy in the world that's signed by all four of <gasps> How did yeah. you get that? So my partner, lover to bits, curried it around all four of them. They're in different corners of the US and persuaded them to each sign it. That's amazing. That's amazing. Did she actually She's meet? A <laughs> <laughs> That's when you know you've got the right yeah, person. Did she is. meet them? Did no, she, she didn't meet she... them. No, she did it all by email. That's yeah. fantastic. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, First edition as well. Sundle Lockington. Wow. Um, okay, so let's explain to listeners <laughs> who are going, what are they banging on about? So this was originally published, I think, on the internet yeah. in 1999, and then yeah. it became a book in 2000. I think that's right. So this is long before Facebook, LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Google had probably just started. It was a ga- it was probably been running someone's garage at that point. Yeah, So 98. 98. Why the clue chain manifesto? Oh, because it foresaw everything we know today. The hairs are going up on the back of my neck because it is such an incredible book. So it was set out as 96 theses, just ideas, notions by four academics, practitioners in communications and social sciences in the US. And they foresaw almost everything that has come to bear 20 years on now. I mean, it is its 20th anniversary this year around organisational communication. You know, the first thing, markets are people. You know, organisations still on the internet talk, go and look on Twitter, in gobbledygook, they talk in this corporate nonsense in the third person with, you know, some sort of grandeur of uh, just completely unrealistic. And so there's 95 further theses that build on, you know, that point about markets and conversations and listening and it's just a brilliant guide there are some critics of the book yeah it got got a lot wrong 
yeah got more right than wrong i think the pace of change potentially hasn't been as fast you know they were talking about the internet bringing back the banter of the bazaar yeah and that kind of royal court language that terribly hierarchical language disappearing and that we were all going to talk like human beings i've read some criticism of it saying well actually you know the hierarchy is pretty much still in place people have this kind of manufactured way of talking to the world it hasn't quite brought real genuine dialogue and conversation to play in the marketplace. How do you feel now, as you say, the the hairs on your back are standing up, are you optimistic still given that that vision hasn't quite come to life? So two answers to that. The first one is that, you know, we are only 20 years on from this new form of media. Actually, it's only really 10 years that it's had an impact on organisational communication. That's a generation or half a generation, depending on how you measure. And, you know, organisations change incredibly slowly. So actually, I think organisational communication is still a work in progress. So let's come back to this conversation in another 20 years and see where we are then. Much of the behaviour, though, that the clue train calls out or says needs to change, they get completely right and it's uncomfortable today as it was when the book was written. So this corporate tone of voice, this, you know, organisations talking at their publics rather than engaging in in conversation. Second thing is along the way, there's all sorts of discontinuity in the internet. So the internet is, you know, Clue Train said it's a market, it's open. And actually the internet we know today isn't open. It's not a market. You know, we're creating walled gardens. So platforms such as Facebook are like trying to create an internet within the internet, you know, so it's a closed system because Facebook wants your data. Things like Twitter, LinkedIn, they're closed networks. They're not open in the way that Clue Train foresaw. The internet isn't a conversation. It's a series of, you know, walled gardens with conversations, whether that's something that will change, I don't know, or whether that's the internet. I've been going through this existential crisis this year around blogging because blogging to me was one of the beautiful things about the internet the fact that you could connect with anybody around the world and have a conversation with them through this medium of comments and hyperlinks connecting different blogs and I just had a bit of an awakening at the start of this year that that backlinking and commenting on blogs had just stopped completely or it's the exception rather than the rule. And the conversation now takes place on Twitter or LinkedIn or Facebook or somewhere else. And I think that's sad. I think it's very sad because I I think blogging is the place where you explore your own ideas, you test them out. Also, for those people that need to write, and there are some people that just need to write, I consider myself one of those people who's like, oh gosh, I haven't written for ages. I just go back to the thing I love most probably. I saw that blog on where are all the blogs gone. Will it come back, do you think? Because it's about the quality, isn't it, blogging at the end of the day, the quality of the thought and the time. Yeah, purity. There's a purity to it. And, it, you know, it's, so where has it gone? It's moved to threaded conversations on Twitter. It's moved to LinkedIn. And there's just so much it's gained on those platforms. Mm. I don't know about you, but the newsfeed on LinkedIn, I find to be... A horrible place. It's not, there isn't a lot of quality there. You've got to work really, really hard to keep your feet clean. Absolutely, absolutely. So anyone thinking about starting a blog, you'd say? I, yeah, I'd do, do it, it, yeah. In fact, there's myself and a colleague have just set up a, a 
comm school for students, a virtual comm school. We're running a series of webinars to get students into blogging. Because I think, you know, blogging is still a way, it's craft, it's still a way you can cut through and have great conversations. Absolutely. And with writing, you do need to practice. Yeah, you do. <laughs> you really, really do. What's that quote about? You just have to sit there until the beads of blood appear on your forehead. Isn't that <laughs> yeah, kind of... <laughs> well, just put one word in front of another. That's what I tell you. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to move to those quick fire questions, yeah. if I may. What would most surprise people about Stephen Waddington? So I sat in the pub with my partner last night and she said, oh, you're a grumpy shit. People, <laughs> people see you on Twitter and they see you on your blog as this hugely optimistic individual, you know, through the books you've written and stuff. Actually, you're really miserable. And I think that's a bit unfair. But actually, I do like my own personal solitude and, and space. Right, uh, OK. And I don't, I think... Could probably be surprised by that because so, I appear to be. So the public relations man's quite happy when he's not in the public. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's yeah. good. That's good. What one book, journal, or website should all communicators read? I've got to say my blog, aren't I? I've Absolutely. Got to say my blog. I've blogged now for about ten years. Found it hugely rewarding. Some weeks I write three or four posts. Some weeks this week I haven't written anything. One thing I've started to do every week, though, is write a letter to people that follow my blog. And that's just become hugely rewarding. It's started to get back some of that conversational approach. I really enjoy that. Excellent. We will make sure all of this material and links are in the show notes. What would you do tomorrow if you knew for certain you wouldn't fail? <laughs> I'm getting married in June, so... <laughs> <laughs> Enough said. <laughs> so, yeah, winging a prayer. <laughs> when you think of the world's best communicator, alive or dead, who comes to mind? So I'm going to pick a class of individual, actually, rather okay. than, and that's people like my grandfather who were passionate about a topic an issue and managed to inspire the public and inspire enthusiasm and there's a class of people particularly in the academic space so I studied engineering and maths I probably shouldn't have done that I probably should have as it's transpired in my career you know it probably would have been better studying English but there's a guy called Richard Feynman who's a Nobel Prize winning physicist in the 50s and 60s and 70s who's just managed to bring the understanding of really complex issues in physics down to a level of understanding that you know someone like me could completely grasp there's people like brian cox that uh, incredible scientist brilliant brilliant massive brain but at the moment is touring the uk filling stadiums with ten thousand people who would have thought who would have thought so that sort of class of individual ken robinson's another educationalist on the, the west coast of america sorry yeah. i picked men that you know super like woman that similarly you know yeah. Brilliant, brilliant minds who are able just to communicate with, with the public in a brilliant way. I love that answer. And I tell you why I love that answer, because I think organisations sometimes forget the power of their experts. Right. They will have experts who are not considered communicators, right. who have their head down, bent, doing something very, very technical. Yeah. And given the chance, some of them are incredibly eloquent mm. and can take what you think to be a dull subject mm. or just a very necessary but kind of pedestrian subject and make it fascinating. So I would just say anyone listening, think about yeah. whether you've got an expert in your organisation, because actually giving them the mic could be really fascinating. Yeah. And I think everyone has their own media as well. 
I think that's something we forget. So, you know, there's organizational leaders that, you know, shy away from standing up on a stage, but actually, you know, might be brilliant if blogging or Absolutely. on radio or, you know, if they're interviewed appropriately, given the proper channel and coaching, then, you know, every, I'm convinced everyone has a media. That's a very interesting thought. So courtesy of the Tim Ferriss Show, I am going to give you a billboard. You can have anything written on it for the world to see. What would you write on it? Listen. Fantastic answer. And what perfect way to end a podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, I did. Yeah, I was wondering whether I should shock that up and say, you know, shut the fuck up and listen. <laughs> and listen. But listen, actually, you know, the world would be a better place if more people listen. Thank you very much, Stephen, for appearing <laughs> and talking on the IC podcast. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you. <laughs> so that's a wrap for episode five of the Internal Comms podcast. For links to Stephen's blog, more about the Clue Train Manifesto, Stephen's comms school and more, hop over to the show notes on AB's website. That's abcom, abcowm.co.uk. While you're there, you might like to sign up for I Saw This and Thought of You. It's our monthly newsletter for internal communicators, a roundup of the latest news, reports and general goings-on in the IC world. It's also where you'll hear about our events, future episodes and receive bonus content. I've been completely blown away by the response from the IC profession to the show. So do please keep your comments and feedback coming in. There are lots of ways to get in touch. You can share your views on Twitter. We're at ABThinks or email me directly, icpodcast at abcom.co.uk. I'd also be very grateful if you could help more IC pros find out about this podcast. Now, apparently the best way to do this is to simply rate it on iTunes. This helps our rankings and makes us more discoverable. And while you're there, do please subscribe and that way you'll definitely not miss another episode. All that remains is for me to say thank you. Thank you for listening to the Internal Comms podcast with me, Katie McCauley. And until we meet again, remember, it's what's inside that counts.